This is An Economy of One, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy, its life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, economyofone.com. An Economy of One.com, as is our Facebook an economy of one on Facebook. Well, this was the week. This was the week we all paid our taxes or filed our taxes or filed an extension. And and this was the week when all of our blood pressure uh, went up and uh, didn't have a very good week from a cash flow standpoint. Now, that being said, a lot of research out there about income taxes, a lot of misnomers. People don't really know a lot about the income tax, but 44% of Americans won't pay any federal income tax. This is according to data from the Tax Policy Center. 44%. Now, the lowest 20% of the income level had a negative income tax, meaning they got money back from the government even though they didn't pay any in. The second lowest, the 20%, that's 40% if you combine them, had a negative $513, meaning they, they made money from the federal government. And this through tax credits that they qualify for, and their income isn't high enough to pay enough tax, or they had enough deductions, or, or something like that. The middle income level... Average income tax bill per person, 2178, 2178. The second richest, 20%, 7,220. And the top 20%, 50,445. Now, the income tax is very complex, and it's estimated that Americans spend roughly a trillion dollars a year on having their taxes prepared trillion dollars. Can you imagine what that would do if it was plowed back into the economy? Trillion dollars. This is the argument I have for going to a simply a flat tax. You just want a flat tax. We we file our our income taxes on a postcard. Remember that was introduced back in 1980 or something like that by Steve Forbes who was running for president at the time. You file your taxes on a postcard. Take you five minutes to file your taxes. I would agree to that. And I would even agree to a, a reasonable rate. I pay a tremendous amount in income taxes. And quite honestly, uh, I don't feel I'm getting my money's worth. I don't mind paying taxes. That's the rent we pay to live in this country. I don't mind helping out some of my fellow Americans. I don't mind paying for our soldiers men and women in the armed forces for national defense. I don't mind paying for some of this stuff, but I do get very upset or disgusted or frustrated, whatever the word is, at paying the amount I pay and watching it all be wasted. All of it being wasted on stupid stuff. Stuff that has nothing to do with the federal government's job in this country. In addition, I pay state taxes, I pay sales tax, I pay local tax, I pay property tax, excise taxes. I'm subject to the alternative minimum tax. I'm just taxed to death. Okay, about half of my year is spent 
paying taxes, about half my income once you add it all up. Bottom 44%, you know what, I'm going to rephrase that. I'm not going to say the bottom 44%. I'm going to say 44% of the population pays no income tax. That means 56% are carrying the weight for the entire country. And most people think that people making more than $250,000 a year are not paying enough. They don't feel corporations are paying enough in taxes. And yet our corporate tax rate is the highest in the world or one of the highest in the world. They always point to the fact that Americans pay less in income tax than other countries. Well, those other countries are undeveloped and they're socialistic or communistic or dictatorial uh, countries. I don't care what anybody else is paying. I care what, what we pay here. And the trouble is people don't understand taxes enough to properly vote or encourage their senators and representatives on proper tax policy. And the government does their share, as any government does, that when you go to cut taxes, you know, all the women and children are going to starve to death. You know, all these bad things are going to happen when uh, it's just not true. It's like when the government shuts down. The government shuts down, 96% of the government still is operating. 96%. So... I do everything I can do legally to reduce my tax bill. And I think everybody should do everything they can to reduce their tax bill. And it's not because I don't love my country. I do. I think we're the greatest country in the world. But I'm carrying the weight of a lot of people and the amount I pay in taxes and the amount of money I spend having my taxes prepared could be better utilized somewhere else. It could be reallocated somewhere else in the economy where we would get a lot more bang for the buck. Like I said, I don't mind paying my fair share, but I'm being penalized because I work 70, 80 hours a week and produce more than other people. And, uh, uh, it's it's reaching a tipping point for some of us. So uh, be aware, learn about taxes, learn about the money, where it's going, what the government does with it, and most importantly, who pays it. 44% pay nothing, and a good percentage of those actually make money from the tax system. Coming up next, I'm going to talk to Stephen Moore about taxes and what uh, President Trump and Congress should do. We'll talk to Stephen next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Stephen Moore. He's currently Freedom Works Senior Economic Contributor. Previously, Stephen served as a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board and is past president of the Club for Growth. He's written many books, including An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of States, 
How Taxes, Energy, and Worker Freedom Change Everything with Art Laffer. Crash Landing, How Bush, Bernanke, Pelosi, and Obama Have Wrecked the U.S. Economy and How to Salvage America's Future. And, of course, one of my favorites, The End of Prosperity. Stephen, welcome to An Economy of One. Happy to be with you. Hey, uh, you know, the last time we talked, uh, you was working very closely with President-elect Trump at that time and putting together some ideas and advising on things. I guess the big thing now is tax reform. It's certainly one of the major campaign promises. Where do you see President Trump right now positioned on tax reform for us? Well, it's a huge issue, and it's it's really needed to spark this economy. And, you know, Trump had a big bounce with the economy mm-hmm. uh, that I think he helped create. I called it a Trump moon bounce. Uh, <laughs> and it happened right after the election, and it went through about the end of uh, and middle of March. But the last uh, month or so, the economy's shown some uh, you know, flattening out. Um, we got a not a very good jobs report um, a week or so ago. Um, and I think the problem here is we need to get uh, this tax bill done. I think there's a lot of nervousness now mm-hmm. among businesses and employers and investors and workers whether this tax cut's going to happen. So I think that uh, Trump needs to show much more urgency getting this done, and I think the Republicans in Congress need to do the same thing. You know, the latest news is, well, maybe we can't get this done this summer, maybe we can't get it done in the fall, maybe it's going to have to wait till 2018. I think that's a big mistake, and I think it'll hurt the economy if this is delayed further. You know, one of the things that, that I was frustrated with when the Affordable Care Act repeal kind of blew up and didn't go anywhere and it really wasn't very good, that kind of stuff, everybody immediately said, okay, well, that, that pushes tax reform back. Is the Obamacare conversation, the the stuff going on in Congress with that, is that really causing that lack of urgency out there, that concern for the, the taxpayers and the businesses? Well, I, I, do, I do think that, you know, not getting that uh, Obamacare repeal bill through a, a number of weeks ago, I think it's uh, it slowed things down. And um, it's given a, a victory to Nancy Pelosi uh, mm-hmm. at a time when, you know, Trump needs victory. So, um, but, look, I don't understand why it should be that, it you know, you can't walk and chew gum at the same time. I mean, they <laughs> should be doing tax reform. <laughs> and uh, health care reform at the same time and put them on separate ta- tracks, different committees, but get them done. Look, we have the highest business tax rates in the world. It's becoming increasingly a bigger problem all the time. We can bring a lot of these companies back to the United States. We can get a lot of new uh, small business investment in this country and, you know, corporations. I, I remember uh, a month or so ago, I uh, had dinner with um, the CEO. CEO of uh, General Electric, Jeff Immelt, and he said, look, get, get those corporate tax rates down from 40% to, say, 15 or 20 and do the repatriation, let these companies bring this money back at a 10, 10% tax rate. And he said, you know, we got about $100 billion at General Electric we could bring back to the United States. Now, that's a lot of money to be invested here in factories and plants and higher wages and more jobs for people, and that's just one company. So the advantages of this are enormous for our economy, and I, I'm just frustrated that it isn't happening faster. What do you think the the low hanging fruit should be for President Trump and for Congress in some some tax reform? Do you think there's a few quick and down and dirty easy things they could do to kind of rebuild some confidence? 
Yeah, I would do this as a two-step process. The first thing I would do is bring the business taxes down, our corporate and small business taxes, right away, right away, and make it retroactive to say April 1st. So every company has an investment decision. You know, they make investment and expansion decisions all the time, every day. And if they know that they're going to get this tax cut, they're more likely to to do that, you know, expansion and hire the more workers. And you don't want them to delay those decisions. So I would do that right away. I might, you know, add to that some infrastructure spending, which is what Democrats and the unions want. And then once you get that done, uh, maybe this year, the next year you do what I call the big bang. And that's reforming the entire 60,000 page uh, tax system, which is a monstrosity. And I've been up the last four nights till 2 a.m. trying to figure out my taxes. It's incomprehensible. Mine aren't even that complicated compared to a lot of uh, people. And, uh, you know, why can't it be on a postcard? Why can't you do your, your, you know, here's your income. You know, you get a deduction for yourself and, and your uh, kids and your spouse and maybe one or two other deductions, and that's it. You know, and then and then you pay in an 18% rate or something, you know, low and fair, and everybody pays a low, flat rate, uh, but no deductions and loopholes and special carve-outs in the system. I mean, that would be so much better for the country, so much better for everybody except for tax accountants and lawyers. So yeah. that's what I favor is a, is a flat tax. Now, you know, the cynic in me says that the income tax, those 60-plus thousand pages of tax law, is not so much about collecting taxes as it is about Congress and the IRS and these people being able to control different aspects of our life. Do you think that in an election year next year that Congress would would really look at what's best for the country or look at what's best to get reelected? Well, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, it's a really <laughs> tough thing to do because, you know, I, I live in Washington and, you know, we have hordes and hordes and hornets nests of special interest groups that want to keep the system complicated. I mean, that's the Washington derives its power from a complicated and convoluted tax system. There's right. no question about it. So the question, but when I go across America, I travel all over the country. People want tax reform. They're demanding it. They want simplicity. They want fairness. They want pro-growth and more jobs. And so it's a question of whether, you know, America can roll Washington and get this done. The only time it's happened in the last 50 years was when Reagan was president in 1986, when we made some you know, significant advantages and, and advances in the simplifying our tax system. But, you know, the amazing thing it hasn't happened in 30 years since then. Wow. That's incredible. Now, that being said, the subject that always comes up with tax reform is offsetting the cut in taxes yeah. with expenses and the national debt. Give me your thoughts on, on those two things when it comes to tax reform. Uh, I, I think we need to do a tax cut for the American families and American businesses, a tax cut. So, no, I don't want, you know, they cut your tax, but they raise mine. No, right, how is that right. a good deal? Or, you know, they, they tax your and my, you know, they cut your and my taxes, but the guy next door has higher taxes. I, I don't understand the logic of that. You know, let's do a tax cut so every business and every worker benefits. And that may mean that Washington's going to have to suck in their stomach and tighten their belt and cut their expenses. But why can't they do it? I mean, my goodness, we have a $4 trillion budget. That's trillion with a T. And they can't cut their expenditures, maybe 5 or 10% per agency so we can have a tax cut, I, I think that's the way to go. And by the way, if we do this tax cut, and I'm right that this is going to help the economy, what do you think is going to happen to tax revenues? They're going to go up. You're going to have more workers, more businesses, uh, you know, higher uh, wages and more profits. You know, that's the, the best way to get revenue is grow the economy. That's your partner in crime, the, uh, Art Laffer, the Laffer Curve. Yes. 
the Laffer yeah, got it. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to necessarily, you know, get every dollar back, but you're going to get a lot of money back when you grow, grow the economy. And by the way, when the economy doesn't grow, when you get recessions, look what happens to tax revenues. They, they go, you know, down the drain. And, and then, then you have to make severe cuts and at a time when people are really hurting. So, you know, we need to get on a growth path. You know, the, the Congressional Budget Office is now saying we're only going to grow at 1.9% for the next 30 years. And that, that's, that's pathetic. You know, we, we, we should be growing at 3.5% per year. And by the way, the difference between just 2% growth and 3% growth, you know, you had trillions of dollars in the economy over the next 10, 20 years. You know, it was Albert Einstein who once said that the most powerful force in the universe is compound interest. And, you know, you're never going to balance the budget at a 1.9% growth rate. You're never going to get enough businesses. You're never going to get enough revenues. We got about 30 seconds left, Stephen. I wanted to mention out now is your latest downloadable edition of Rich States, Poor States. Now, what state are you in there? What state are you in? I'm in the great state of Ohio. Okay. So, so Ohio has made some great advances, actually. Yeah. In our, we've done this for 10 years. Ohio is, I think, next to Indiana. Ohio is the second most progress of any state. Uh, I'm, I'm bullish on Ohio. Uh, I'd love to see Ohio eliminate its income tax. I think big. Too. But there are nine states that have no income tax, and those are the high-flying states. So yep. why don't we get together and try to make Ohio the 10th state in this country with no income tax? And uh, if you want to bring jobs back to Ohio, do that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, our, our neighbor Indiana is is really showing us a lot of the template over the years. Right. And, and Well, I the mean, other thing that Indiana did that Ohio has not done, and, and I hope it gets done before John Kasich is done as, as governor, is Ohio has to become a right-to-work state. Absolutely. I mean, it's just clear. Yep. That's where the jobs are being created, and that's not anti-union. It's just to say every worker should have the right to join the union or not join the union. And, and uh, you know, there are now 29 states that are right-to-work, and I'd love to see uh, Ohio become the 30th. Yeah, we need to. Uh, I, I talked to the governor of Indiana when they passed the right to work, and I said, so what are you thinking about Ohio? And he says, we're going to take all the jobs from you we can and yep. <laughs> it's been working yep. out that way. So, Stephen, once again, thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure. And uh, I read everything you put out and keep up the great work. We'll put all the stuff on our website, richstatesporestates.org. And look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Sir. Talk to you soon. Coming up next, I'm going to talk with Phil Kirpin about Internet privacy, something that's on all of our minds. We'll talk to Phil next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Phil Kirpin. He's a leading free market policy analyst and advocate in Washington, D.C. He's president of the American Commitment, chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition, and author of Democracy Denied. And my uh, producer, Katie, who's a mother of eight, felt it important that she put down that you're a father of four and you're just coming off bedtime duty. So, Phil, welcome to An Economy of One. Hey, uh, actually, the kids are not in bed yet, but uh, oh. three, three out of four have had their baths. So. Oh, well, that, that's a good start, I guess. So <laughs> I'm a father of none, so it's hard for me to relate to uh, all the uh, chaos that goes around having a, a bunch of children in the house. But uh, uh, congratulations nonetheless. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Phil, I wanted to talk to you a little bit, um, as we've seen in, in some of the... Uh, 
the media out there, uh, President Obama, uh, gee, there's a Freudian slip. President Trump uh, signed some legislation essentially getting rid of or uh, negating President Obama's uh, Internet privacy uh, uh, rules. And, and that's kind of been portrayed wrongly to us, hasn't it? I mean, didn't uh, uh, what, what has Trump done? Um, I think he did something very good, but if you paid attention to the mainstream media narrative on this and, uh, and some of the misinformation that's out there, you would think that this was the most catastrophic mistake in history, and uh, all of your most intimate private information will now be sold in an open-air bazaar somewhere or uh, what have you. None of that is true. It's completely illegal to sell personally identifiable information. That has not changed. That's always been the case. What was done is a, a new rule that never took effect was blocked before. For taking effect. And this particular uh-huh. rule uh, would have hamstrung the ability of the internet service providers, the phone and cable companies, to run their own advertising networks and compete with Google and Facebook. And um, that's a bad idea. That's, a, that's the kind of thing that should be stopped because we ought to want to have a free market where competitors are all treated the same and they can succeed or fail based on their merits. And what happened in this case was uh, Google, which had enormous influence with the Obama administration, they had about 250 personnel go from Google into the Obama administration or in and out of it. Um, they basically said, look, you know, the internet service providers are talking about potentially starting their own advertising networks. We have a dominant market share in online advertising. Why compete when we can get our friends in the Obama administration to prohibit them from competing in the business that we're in right now by imposing much, much more uh, stringent regulations on them than are applied to us? And this, this happened through a couple of steps. Historically, Everyone who has access to private data, personal information, and so forth, is regulated by the Federal Trade Commission, and everyone is regulated in basically the same way, uh, with an opt-out system where your information can be used for advertising purposes unless you say, I do not want you to do that. Uh, basically, there's a presumption that you're in as opposed to out. And what Google did was they got the FCC to preempt those regulations for the Internet service providers. So instead of being subject to the same rules that have always applied to everyone, they preempted them just for Internet service providers and then adopted this separate set of rules on just that segment of Internet companies, but not the rest. And so Google, which has far more access to data than anyone else, they own Android, they own YouTube, they've got their tracking cookies on more than 60% of all websites on the entire Internet, uh, they would continue under the same opt out regime that historically applied with the Federal Trade Commission being their regulators. You know, if people think that opt-out is better than opt-in, um, you know, we could have that debate, and that's something the FTC could consider. Europe has an opt-out regime. But whatever we decide to do, it should be for everyone. We should not have one set of rules for Google and another much more limiting set of rules for the ISPs, because all that does is protect Google's dominant market share. It's a very, very unfair approach by the Obama administration that's now been overturned. And uh, all of these horror scare stories that you're hearing are completely false. And if you don't really need to take my word for it, because the rule never took effect. Yeah. It was scheduled to take effect in the future. And so if that was the only thing protecting us from, you know, your most private data being sold, uh, it would have happened already because yeah. the rule never took effect. And of course, as I said, um, there's a statutory prohibition on selling personally identifiable information. That's a lie. When you see these headlines about Republicans want to sell your browser history, that's a lie. That's still completely illegal. And that's not how 
how the advertising market works, by the way. They don't sell data. They sell ads onto the network, and they right. do the targeting and so mm-hmm. forth. And so there's just been an extraordinary amount of disinformation on this. I actually heard from a leadership office on Capitol Hill that there have been more calls on this issue than on the health care issue. And so this thing has just blown up in an enormous, enormous way. Uh, they're selling a fake narrative to beat up on Republicans politically. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of Republicans who voted for this, did not they were doing the right thing, but they didn't really understand why, and they didn't explain themselves very well. Well, and, and I think a lot of us, uh, myself included, um, I, I, I don't consider myself very technologically literate, uh, but I am uh, fairly cynical on, on anything the media puts out there. Uh, you mentioned in your, your column that uh, under President Obama's plan, he was going to regulate the Internet like a public utility. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, that's actually, that's in effect right now. And this is actually, I think this whole privacy fight is really sort of a preview of the bigger fight on whether we undo those public utility regulations. And that really, um, that really is the big one, because what the Obama FCC did is they said, look, we've had this unregulated free market internet for 20 years. That was a big mistake. Instead, we ought to regulate the phone and cable companies, the broadband providers, um, fixed as well as wireless broadband providers. We ought to regulate them like the old Ma Bell telephone monopoly, where they've got to file their rates, wherever they want to offer a new service, they've got to get that approved, where there can be complaints about anything that's filed with the FCC Enforcement Bureau, and they can decide what is or isn't allowed, what kind of business arrangements are going to be permitted, what kind of products are going to be allowed. Uh, and so they they imposed enormously stifling micromanagement type regulations, and uh, we haven't seen a lot of the specifics written because the way they did it, they punted a lot of the specifics to nameless, faceless bureaucrats at the enforcement bureau. Uh, but even what they adopted was about 350 pages or so of, of uh, pretty detailed regulatory requirements, and we've already seen a pretty significant decrease in investment in the broadband sector as a consequence of that. Um, and I think that they, the left wing groups that have gone so nuts about this privacy fight over the last couple of weeks are really gearing up over this bigger fight of whether we're going to, you know, essentially uh, return the Internet to being, you know, an unregulated free market competitive sector as opposed to this heavily regulated model that the Democrats adopted when they were at the FCC. And by the way, uh, the one piece of the puzzle that they never got to drop into place because they were waiting till after the presidential election, but, uh, you know, it didn't go the way they expected it to, uh, they were going to adopt a broadband tax of about, you know, a 17 to 20 percent under the auspices of universal service, because they can do that uh, after reclassifying it as a public utility. You'll notice that that charge is on your phone bill now. It's not on your Internet bill. Uh, That was likely the next shoe to drop. We won't see that now, because with Republicans in control, they won't won't, uh, do that. They're going to unwind this whole thing. But that's, I think, going to be the really big fight here over the next few months is, you know, are we going to keep this heavily regulated public utility-style central control that you got to go to the FCC and ask, Mother, may I before rolling out a new service that was adopted under Obama, are we going to go back to the free market approach that we had for 20 years that used to be a bipartisan consensus? And I'll tell you, Gary, based on what we saw in this privacy fight in terms of the dishonesty of the tech left and their media allies, I think you can bet that they're going to say, oh, my God, Republicans are trying to deregulate the evil cable company. They're going to charge you a fortune if they're not regulated. They're going to do all kinds of terrible things. And it's going to be a challenge to get to fix that thing. Now, you know, as you as you're talking, I'm thinking about this and forgive my illiteracy uh, on this, but there's something in my mind that something happened uh, recently where uh, America was no longer going to be in charge of uh, 
establishing domains and domain names and stuff that that was put out on the international market or the UN or, or somebody. It, 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 what, what am I thinking there? I, I mean, I got little pieces yeah, that's a separate in my issue. That was something the uh, that was something the Department of Commerce did last year uh, under Obama. They uh, they actually relinquished control of what's called the root domain server, um, yes, the domain name system. Yes. The domain name system, when you type in a website address, uh, the domain name system is what translates that the, the words you type in into the numbers, what are called the internet protocol numbers, that route it to its destination. And so if you don't have the ability to look up that name, uh, you can't get where you're going. Your computer won't know the, the internet address of, of where you're trying to reach. And so the domain name system um, has been largely privatized already. But there was this uh, there was this one sort of peg to U.S. control and U.S. oversight, which was that the uh, international body that oversees the domain system, it's something called ICANN, uh, it did so under a contract from the Department of Commerce. And the understanding was that, uh, you know, if they didn't stay within certain guardrails, uh, that contract could always be revoked and the U.S. could reassert its control. And it had never needed to do that. But a lot of people think the threat of that is important to prevent them from doing things like deciding, you know, that Israel is a rogue regime, so we're going to block the .il domain so nobody can get right. to Israeli sites and things like that. And, uh, you, know, we, you know, it's been only a few months since this was done towards the end of the Obama administration. We haven't seen any mischief yet. Uh, but it certainly is a potential concern, and uh, you know we, we let go of that hook that we had to prevent the, uh, the, the mucking with the domain name system. And um, that one would be very hard to reverse. Uh, that's going to be a tough one to try to reverse, and it's not clear if the Trump administration is going to try to or not. You know, with with the fact that politicians respond to 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 a certain extent uh, pressure from the electorate out there, if if uh, the electorate doesn't understand this technical stuff as to what they're doing, it's uh, pretty hard to write your congressman and tell them not to do it. So uh, your work is very important. We really appreciate you. Uh, coming on, giving us that information. We've been speaking with Phil Kirpin. He's a leading free market policy analyst and advocate in Washington, D.C., president of American Commitment and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition uh, and father of four. I have to put that on there. Uh, <laughs> Phil, once again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know we took a little time away from your family, but this is important stuff. And uh, uh, we got to have an, uh, an expert helping us. Uh, with this. So I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again soon and, and keep the dialogue going. Yeah, you got it. AmericanCommitment.org if people want to read more about that. We'll put that on our website and Facebook as well. AmericanCommitment.org. Once again, thank you so much for your time, Phil, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a good one. Thank you. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, we get a lot of questions uh, every, every week about uh, investing and investment terms and, and how to do things and what, what certain things mean in the economy. So I thought I'd, I'd take a little time today and touch on one of the, the ones that uh, is very important and we get a lot of questions about, and that is uh, price-earnings ratio. I know, I know, that sounds boring already, but it really isn't. Uh, you've often heard me say that the price of a stock 
and ultimately the the price of the stock market, the index, like the S&P 500 or whatever, uh, at the end of the day, it, it always comes down to earnings. And, you know, you got to think about that a little bit. There's a lot of emotion that goes into the market on a daily basis, a lot of an, uh, uh, speculation about different things happening, like the, the French election or terrorist attacks or or China, or North Korea, or any of that kind of stuff. All of that plays a factor in the movement of the index. But that that movement, that that volatility caused by that emotion is generally fairly temporary. And, and eventually, the market always gets back to an equilibrium point where fundamentals are important. Now, fundamentals uh, essentially refer to numbers, balance sheet, earnings, that kind of stuff. And when you look at a P.E. ratio, P.E. stands for price earnings ratio. So uh, to, to put it in, in base 10 terms, let's say you have a stock that earns $1 per share per year. That's the earnings. And the, the stock is trading at $10. Well, it's trading at 10 times earnings, 10 to 1. Dollar of earnings, share price, 10 bucks. That's the P.E. ratio then is 10. Why is that important? Because if the next earning report comes out and the earnings are a dollar and a half per year instead of a dollar, on the same ratio then that stock should be trading at $15. And that's why these earnings reports are so important and the future guidance of earnings are so very important because investors look at that P.E. ratio, that multiple of earnings, and based on the confidence they have in those future numbers, will determine what they're willing to pay for a stock in the future. So you can see when earnings disappoint if the market was planning on that dollar per share and that $10 stock and it came in at 75 cents, then the price of that stock will drop to 750. Now there's more that goes into the equation, but on a simplified version as a rule of thumb, this will give you some guidance on how important earnings are, how important that future guidance of earnings is, and whether to to uh, uh, determine whether a stock is overpriced or underpriced. The, the, the S&P 500 as a whole, historically, people have accepted, investors and uh, economists and speculators and analysts have all anticipated or expected the S&P 500 as a whole index to trade around 15 times earnings. So they take all the stocks in the S&P, they take all the earnings of those stocks, and they run it through a computer, and it determines the price of the index based on the cumulative earnings. And this is when, when you read a headline that says, experts feel the, the market is overpriced or underpriced. That's what they're basing it on. So right now, the S&P 500 is trading 
at around 20 times expected earnings. And that tells us that uh, prices might be a little high, but it also tells us that the market is expecting earnings to rise in the very near future. So when you read these headlines, it says, analysts say the market is overpriced. Well, that's what they're basing it on. They're basing it on the P.E. ratio, the price earnings ratio, the the amount of earnings for the index times or divided by the uh, price of the underlying stocks. So earnings are very, very important. A miss is very, very important. If, if market expectations are for 82 cents a share and it comes in at 81 cents a share, that's a miss. That's a miss. And that will affect the underlying price of the stock almost immediately. And there is some emotion attached to the miss because you, you react on the miss and then it takes a little bit to read the reports, read the, the financials to see why they missed. And if why they missed is a legitimate business or an accounting um, issue, then the price will, will stabilize very quickly. If they miss because sales are down, top line is down versus bottom line, if they miss because of uh, a major product defect, if they miss because the FDA didn't prove their drug, uh, to sell, for example, uh, then then you got to do a little more analysis to see what your expectation of the company's earnings are in the future. So everybody can have a bad quarter. Everybody can have multiple bad quarters and not necessarily be a bad business model or a bad company. Um, things take time to develop. Uh, it takes time to transition from one product to another, from one business plan to another. Um, brick and mortar, they can be retooling, they can be building new buildings, they can do all kinds of stuff that affect earnings. So analysts and some investors react immediately to that earnings number that comes out, immediately, and others wait and kind of read through the report and see why the numbers are what the numbers are. That future guidance is very, very important. If they say, well, we beat earnings, you was expecting 82 cents a share, we did 85 cents a share, but that was kind of an anomaly, and uh, we took some uh, uh, accounting moves and inventory moves, and we don't expect that to happen again in the future. So PE ratio, very important number, very basic, something you need to know. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual, be self-reliant, be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 